Thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Um, it's always good to be able to explain what you've done over the previous how many years it is. It must be about 1819 these days. So, uh, yes. Parents and their world and healthcare professionals. So this is basically an overview of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, most of it is based on interviews or focus groups. I did some focus groups evaluating family weight management intervention recently. And as Pauline was saying, it's, it's all about how these two worlds interact. To set the scene a little bit, hardly anybody has done qualitative research with families up until fairly recently. The early stuff was all in clinical populations because most overweight children were in clinical populations. Then there's a big gap in the 1990s, second half of the 80s, 1990s, and the beginning of this century. As more money has been thrown at childhood obesity, what's happened is all the qualitative research has tended to revolve around how people coped with interventions. And so a lot of it is, did you like the people? How did the diet work for you? What was the physical activity regime like? It's not getting under the carpet of what's really going on for families. So that, that's where my research fits in at the beginning. I did it 2001, 2002, this first study that I'm going to talk about. So there, there were no restrictions on it. I could go and talk to them about anything I wanted to. And that's just a brief picture of who it was. I was talking to the parents of 40 overweight children. And as you can see, it took up to five hours to go through this because obviously people tell you their stories and then you have to help them pack it all back in again because you can't just leave them. And as I say, focus groups with children who have completed an intervention. I use shapes a lot. I like using pictures because people relate to them. All the parents I've ever talked to have had a pretty good idea of what size their child is. What they don't have a good idea about is whether that size is too big. Because when all the children around them are also pretty big, their child just looks normal. So, for instance, when these were drawn, shape three was considered normal or average. They were drawn in 1983. Now, child three looks pretty thin these days, and the average is drifting towards shape five for children, which is actually noticeably overweight. But as I say, if you're a parent, you only have one or two children, and you look at the children around you and they're all the same shape, you don't worry. And that's just a spread of their ages against their shapes. I'm not miss this. Where did you do this work? Um, I'll come on to that. It's, it's in, in the UK. Well, in England. Specific places in what um, Around Oxford. I've got a map a bit later on. Around okay. Oxford, around Exeter. Um, so there's a pretty good spread of ages and slightly more girls and boys and a variety of shapes. So, mothers. I apologise for these all coming up at the same time. But if you're a mum, you're not just thinking about your overweight child, you're thinking about your whole family and all their sort of dietary, physical activity needs. 
along with everything else that goes on in the family. You don't, I mean, you do focus on the one child who might have a problem, whatever that problem is. But as I say, it's just in a mix of everything else that goes in, goes on in the family. And mothers, most mothers, are very concerned about protecting their children and their children's self-esteem. Because they know, I mean, they may not put it in this language, but they know at some point it's really important to have a functioning child who can cope with the world. And if you've got a child who's being bullied at school, if you've got a child that's beginning to feel isolated, you know they're not coping as well as they should be. They are terrified of precipitating an eating disorder. That stops them acting on all sorts of things on the diet front because they don't want to raise it as an issue for their child. If their child's not bothered, they sometimes do it in a sort of a covert way. Um, if their child is bothered, then they try and talk, depending on the age of the child, they will talk to them about it and try and organise ways of addressing what they're eating. Um, as I say, a negotiated way with the child, if it's old enough. But that, as I say, is a major concern for them. The other thing that often gets forgotten are the, are the, the other adults around. They can be really unhelpful. So, for instance, if even a dad who's living in, in the house, it tends to be dads in particular, they can sabotage mum's efforts to try and help the family in a more healthy way. You know, I've had them say, well, I'm not having that low-fat rubbish. I want butter in the house. I don't want low-fat spreads. So if that's something that mum's chosen to work with, she's got her partner undermining that. And that applies to all sorts of things, whether they go to McDonald's, whether they buy ice creams and they're out on a tree, all sorts of things. Now, it's not to say children shouldn't have treats, but it's the antagonism that gets set up between the parents. And I talked to one mum who had, she just had the one little boy who was about eight when I spoke to her and it was actually breaking up their marriage, their disagreements about how this child should be treated. So, you know, unsympathetic other significant others in the family are quite, can be quite a serious problem. And then that's within the family. Outside the family, you then start interacting with other people around you and you in, almost immediately come face to face with all the negative attitudes that society holds generally about being overweight or having an overweight child. And that's, you know, it's not just healthcare professionals, it's teachers, it's just about everybody. And usually the message that mothers get in particular is that it's all their fault, which makes them very hard to find and talk to about this sort of thing because you know, they, they think they're going to be told off, that you think that you're going to have a go at them. And, I mean, that's obviously not true, but that, that's, that's where they're starting from when it comes to, to doing anything like this. And if they go out looking for children, although there are lots of interventions out there now, a lot of work has been, has been done in the intervening sort of eight years, it's still incredibly difficult for mums who aren't plugged into this sort of world to find what's helpful for them and their child. It's incredibly difficult. 
And another major issue is because it's so socially sensitive, nobody talks about it. I talked to one mum who had a very big nine-year-old, and she said there was another mum, there was a little boy in her nine-year-old's class who was the same size as her. And I interviewed this mum about three times, and I said to her in the last one, because I got to know her quite well by, by then, um, I said, would it ever cross your mind to talk to the mum of the little boy in your daughter's class? She said, oh, no. Yeah, I wouldn't dream of doing that. And I've talked to school nurses who've been threatened by parents who, before they've said anything, have come up to them and said, don't you tell me my child's overweight. And they get, people are getting more and more aggressive with healthcare professionals in particular if they think they're going to be told off. So that's you know, something else to, to bear in mind with this stuff. And for mums, um, everybody says, oh, they're, they're unaware. And it's, it's not true. Not all of them are unaware. Just because people aren't talking about it, it doesn't mean to say they're not aware, they don't care, they're not doing anything. I mean, yes, some of them are like that, but an awful lot of them who may look like that aren't. And so what you want is for them to come to terms with sort of accepting their child has a weight problem, they need help, and then what's the best way of taking them forward? And getting them to accept that their child might need some help, or they may need to do something differently for their child, is, I imagine it's the same with all sorts of conditions and possibly diseases. It's like, you know, you don't have that perfect child, you've got to do something else, you've got to cope with the emotional fallout from that. And of course, what you want them to do is to have a balanced attitude about it. They're not going, or they're highly, highly unlikely to develop an eating disorder. And so the whole family can deal with it in a sensible way. And usually the sensible way means it's good for everybody in the family too. Because you're improving what you're eating, you're improving what you're doing, you're improving your attitudes towards this and the need to keep robust self-confidence, let alone self-esteem. And this is um, a quote from one of the mums that sums up the denial stuff nicely. Because that's, that's how it's seen, it's like an abnormality in a child and you don't want to admit your child's abnormal. And then the other side of that is the social stigma. The word fat is one of the biggest insults you can use. And so it's only people who don't think they've got a weight problem who use the word fat. As soon as you start thinking you might be overweight or a bit fluffy or whatever the latest term is, you stop using the word fat because of the negative associations with it. So what help do they want? The biggest thing is they want to know how to handle relationships within the family better because the healthy eating messages, the physical activity messages are out there. What they actually want is to know how to change behaviours or attitudes within their own families. And that's... If, you, if your own mother is either... What grannies do is they either say, your child's overweight, you're feeding that child too much, what do you think you're doing? And they have a real go at them. Or they do two other things. One is, 
you don't feed that child properly, I'm going to give it food like we used to have. So these children will get roast dinners and two veg meals, irrespective of whether they've had pizza or pasta or whatever else they've had, they will get a proper cooked meal as well. The other thing they do is they treat them. So I had one mum who said, every time we go to my mother's, the fairy box comes out, which was full of chocolates and sweets and all the nice things that children find very difficult to say no to. And if you're doing that on a regular basis, and if everybody else on that side of the family is also overweight, it's incredibly difficult for a mum to stand up and say, please don't do that. Because it's like, that's how our family is. If you want to fit into our family, that's how you behave. So you're not just challenging the child, you may be challenging everybody else in an extended family as well. And they would like something to be done about the social stigma, we all would, and everybody would like more time and energy. Um, and the environment, the environment, it's, it's interesting. For the majority of the last 20 years, the focus has all been on the individual. And it's only in the last two or three, when we're looking at prevention, that people are beginning to say, well, perhaps we should have roads that accommodate cyclists or people walking. Perhaps we shouldn't have advertising to children. Perhaps we should start thinking about what goes into our food and actually formulating, particularly children's cereals, for example, which are 50% sugar. Um, so people are now, at long last, beginning to think about the environment in which children are growing up in, which, of course, will help parents, in turn, with their, with their child's um, upbringing in this respect. And this is the sort of thing, I mean, the, these are the youngest children in the study before, so they're not quite preschool, but they're not far away from it. And this is the sort of thing that children this young were coming back home with. You know, you've got a four-year-old who's sensitive about her tummy, a five-year-old who's coming home crying because of the bullying. And this thing, this, comments like this go in very deep, very young, and they're quite difficult to shift. And these, these are quotes around older children, but from when they were preschool. These mums had big children who had bitten the word go and were always hungry. And often, um, I mean, the, the last quote, they, so the parents, I interviewed both parents for this one, they said, you could hear, she wasn't just making it up, you could hear her stomach rumbling an hour after she'd had a sensible breakfast. So they're not attention seeking, they're genuinely hungry. Their bodies have either been pre-programmed in the womb or something has happened to them to make them want to eat and feel hungry. And again, that is difficult. People don't, healthcare professionals in particular, don't always appreciate that that's, it's not as simple as don't feed them. If you've got a screaming child or a child who's obviously hungry, it's incredibly difficult for a mum not to give them something to eat or drink. One of the things that surprised me when I first started doing the evaluations of the busybody's intervention, um, this is based in Bedford, and they've now been doing it for about four or five years, and I've been evaluating it on and off most of that time. Um, as far as the mums are concerned, the social connectedness of their children is key. One of the 
earliest papers that came out in this field. It's from the States, looking at the WIC program. The mums all said they didn't worry about their children if their children had friends. Because it's increasingly difficult. The bigger you are, the harder it is to have friends. And the parents are quite involved in this intervention as well. They do a lot of the activities with their children, and they've never seen their children as happy as they are when they go off and do the activities in this intervention. There are no pressures on these children to look good, to wear the right things. They're just there to have fun. Everybody's there to manage their weight better. So all those pressures are removed. So nobody's going to be horrible to them because they're all there for the same reason. And for parents, it's a real treat to see their children really enjoying themselves and having a laugh with friends that they've made on the course. Just without, you know, in a carefree way, because it's so unusual for them. One of the things that struck me when I started doing these focus groups was that the things they were saying to me about their world, how they interacted with healthcare professionals and teachers and various other people, was exactly the same as I'd been hearing when I did that first study. So, despite all our best efforts, very little has changed out there in the real world. And these, these parents are sort of, they're lucky in that they've actually had a pretty effective help, sort of an intervention that makes a difference, offered to them. And they don't pay for it. They just have to sign up to go along for the 16, 17 weeks. Now, one of the things that Paulina asked me to do was to talk about how to get to hard-to-reach groups of people. And trust me, these are hard to get to. In the proposal, I thought, oh yeah, healthcare, profession, healthcare professional settings is an obvious place to go and recruit parents with overweight children. But where they actually came from was advertising and slimming groups. And one absolute star of a paediatric dietitian down in Exeter. If I just relied on the healthcare settings, I wouldn't have, you know, I would have had ten people. Where, where did you advertise? I advertised in local papers, um, and I did sort of. It was when Six TV was running here, so I did an advert on Six TV, and I put a call out on BBC Devon. Um, Anyway, I was getting desperate anywhere that would allow me to tell people about this research. So, but as I say, the swimming, swimming groups were great. I would roll up there and they would let me do sort of, you know, this is our recipe for whatever. They would let me stand up and say, I'm doing this research, is anybody interested? And quite often people would come up to me afterwards and say, we don't mind talking to you because you're overweight. That's a really, like, I'm not in a position to judge them. <coughs> So that's, that's a really big deal. So it's actually been very useful being overweight in terms of getting to people to do this research. I'm not suggesting you put on overweight, um, get overweight if you want to go and talk to them. But in answer to your question earlier on, that, that's where they came from. I mean, given the number of children who fit the criteria for this research, it took me a whole year to find parents of 40 children who would be willing to talk to me. And if I'd known, I would have made my travel budget a lot bigger. Because 
I mean, you can see where Oxford and Exeter are, but I also ended up sort of going right the way down to Land's End almost to, to get them all. So, as I say, they're, they're not easy to find. Right, healthcare professionals. These, these are from the original study. So they're not, un, you know, you get a mix like you would about most sort of conditions or responses, particularly um, chronic ones. There is still an issue about what help can be offered, but as I say, there are now interventions running if the practice or the local authority are willing to fund them, which of course is a, an increasing issue these days. They will grow out of it. If you write a paper on they will grow out of it. They won't, but people still don't understand that they won't. Or they get dismissed because they're making a fuss. Or it's all your fault, go away and do something about it. Unfortunately, dietitians aren't the most helpful people when it comes to weight management, particularly with families and children. If they're more child-centred, you stand more on the chance. And there isn't a huge literature on health professionals' views, but because a lot of them don't recognise it, they don't know how to talk about it, they don't know what help to offer, it's still really not on the table for them when a parent walks through the door. They sort of, they, they're beginning to feel increasingly, because of the publicity around childhood obesity, they're beginning to feel increasingly like they should be doing something about it, but they don't know what, how, when, they know why. And this is, these are some of the quotes that parents told me from their interactions with GPs. And this was just as likely to be said to a child who was shaped seven, one of the biggest children who would have been sort of way over the 85th centile for the UK. And these are from 2010. So as I say, not a lot has changed. And it's not just primary care. I mean, the last quote there about the law of unintended consequences telling a child they're going to be ill or they're going to be big if they don't do something about it, it just doesn't work. So we've got quite a lot of these. As I say, in terms of help, there isn't a lot of help out there. And the last quote there, I feel like I'm wandering around in the dark on my own. Most parents feel like that. They don't know where to turn. They've tried all the sensible things and nothing seems to be working. So they go and seek health care professionals' help, usually when their child is about shape six. So they've already got an established weight problem going on. And they still don't get anything that actually helps them very much. And as I say, overweight children tend to be regarded as a homogenous group, and they're really, really not. Some of them arrive in the world big, and they're likely to stay big. You can get sort of, um, it's slightly less true now because a lot of work has been done with health visitors, but health visiting comes from a background of make sure the child is getting enough to eat. 
So they're very good at making sure the child is getting enough to eat, and they will use centaur charts to show a mum where their child is. But that's not actually very meaningful to a mum quite often. And if they show them that their child was off the charts, that doesn't actually mean a great deal to them either. They because what can they do if they've got a hungry, say, six-month-old that's screaming all night long? They're not going to let it scream, either because their partner doesn't want them to, they don't want to listen to the screaming, they've got other children in the house, they might have neighbours complaining, so they will feed their child. I've got some quotes from some of this early stuff in a couple of slides. But as they get older, I mean, children are coping with their parents' separations and divorces, they're coping with second families, sometimes third families, and all these sort of societal changes that they're dealing with face on can have a really big impact on how they feel about themselves and, and how they cope with the world. And the victim stuff starts kicking in sort of from around five onwards. And then, as I say, with one of the issues that parents have, because everybody's so busy, it's not like mum's at home cooking three meals a day anymore. You know, she's probably out doing a full-time job. The child's care may be shared between her, her partner, grandparents, childminders, nurseries, as well as schools. And so the child doesn't necessarily have a particularly stable environment if you're dealing with something as sensitive as this anymore. And some of the work that was done in the 80s was looking at overprotective mums and dependent children. It's very, very difficult for a mum who thinks there might be something wrong with their child to become overprotective, which then in turn creates a dependency on that child to be protected by a mum which can appear to other people to be like mum's being really soft and it's hard for an individual dyad, if that makes sense, to know what's okay, what's normal and what isn't because that's just the interaction that they've developed. So it's not just a question of don't feed them so much, you know, it could be unpicking quite a lot of other stuff that's going on in the family and for them in particular before you can start to help them. And children are dealing with death in the families, and it's something that is almost ignored. I've talked to adults who get lots of help and counselling and there's crews and all the rest of it. There are very few services for children. And if you've got a child who is coping with, there was one little boy, well, little boy, I think he was about 13, his best friend, best friend's brother had died. His grandparents have both died within three months of each other. So this child was coping with three significant deaths in the period of six months. And he was going down to the fridge and emptying it at night. He had two older brothers, or an older brother and sister, who just thought it was hilarious. And with this particular interview, I ended up with him, <coughs> mum, dad, brother, sister, all in the room, discussing him. Um, it's actually very hard when you're sitting in somebody's house to say, excuse me, do you mind leaving? You can't do it, you know. So I had to steer the interview to make it less sens sensitive for him so that he could cope with it. And he still ended up in tears 
mean, I ended up, I felt you know, really sorry for this child because of the way he was being scapegoated by the family. And as I was leaving, I sort of grabbed his mother and said, get in touch with this charity, he needs help. And she did, she sent me a nice email. Um, about six months later, she was just about to take him off to his first session with a grief counsellor, with this charity organised for children. And that's before you get to all the inequalities that are going on out there. This, this is a seven-year-old when she was a baby. She had a pretty, both her parents weren't overweight. She started out as a, as a normal weight baby, but they were concerned, the health visitors weren't con were concerned that she wasn't putting on weight fast enough. So they suggested the SMA gold. Rapid weight gain, particularly before the age of two, is a recipe for a lifelong weight problem. This child at seven was delightful. I actually met her briefly. I met quite a lot of them. And his parents were saying to me, you have to explain to her that she can't play like she would normally play with her friends. She had one friend in particular who was about half her size. And I said to her, you can't swing around, you'll hurt her. And you get children who, when they're big, quite young, have bags of stamina. They're very strong because they're resistance training all the time, in effect, even though they've got some relatively less muscle tissue. Um, and so you end up with children who, if they get angry when they're older, which some of them really do, they can do a lot of damage because they're not, they may be a seven-year-old inside, but they're actually the size functioning of, say, a 10 or 11-year-old. And that's a huge difference. So, as I say, this little girl had to be explained to be gentle. She had to tell her to be gentle with friends. Because she was a bit boisterous and could damage them. And then, even though healthcare professionals will say, no, this medicine won't make any difference to your sides, a lot of parents who have children who are on quite strong medicines when they're young, don't believe that as far as they're concerned, their experience is this, their child has taken whatever it is they've been given and they've put on weight. So therefore it's, it's the medicine that's caused the problem. And if you're going to be dealing with anybody who sends to this issue, the best way to do it is, to, is just be yourself really and reflect back the language that they use. I mean, I'm probably telling my grandmothers to suck eggs collectively here. <laughs> so I'm sure you've all done those sorts of things. But it's 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 quite um, as I say, I'm I'm overweight. I don't have an issue about being overweight. And just to show the first time I stood up in front of an audience and said that at a conference, there was a <gasps> in the audience because I said I was overweight. I mean it's, I'm obviously overweight. <laughs> And yeah, it's, it's such a sensitive thing that, that came up. And as I say, if you're dealing with parents, often the parents will be overweight. Not all of them, but a good many of them will be. And so just, you don't have to make a big deal about it, but not hiding that fact helps you get them to talk. So I've nearly finished. That's just a 
collection of stuff. I'd just like to show you a couple of slides. You said the shapes. Interviews with children. This was unprompted mentions of their own being, them being overweight themselves. So I didn't talk about weight or anything else at all. This came totally from them. And you can see, as they get bigger, they become aware that they're overweight, and they become aware because other children tell them they're overweight. And that divide between not being told you're overweight and being told you're overweight is roughly there. The health consequences, long-term health consequences, start kicking in at shape five. So when you think that that's pretty much average these days, children, slim children, will still be telling the bigger ones that they're overweight. And one of the reasons why people get, or are so concerned about child obesity is once you become overweight, it's incredibly difficult to do anything about it. And as I say, if you're looking at prevention, that's, that's the ideal. And there are still too few interventions that work out there that will help children actually manage their well, help families manage their world better for everybody.